This is an ABC podcast. Dale Kent grew up in working-class Melbourne in the 1950s. In her Christian science family, Doris Day was the ideal for girls. Endlessly cheery and squeaky clean. But Dale knew she wanted a different kind of life. Most of all, a different life than her mother and grandmother had lived. Dale was smart, she studied hard, and she fell in love with learning, devoting herself to the art and literature of the Italian Renaissance. Dale was determined to make her way in the wide world. And she succeeded, studying in the archives of Florence and London, and then forging an academic career at universities all across the US, including Harvard, Princeton and Berkeley. But as with many women of her era, Dale paid a heavy personal price for this intellectual and professional freedom. Her marriage broke up and for many years she was estranged from her daughter. She drank too much and had a string of love affairs in search of a soulmate who never turned up. Her memoir is The Most I Could Be, a Renaissance story. Hi, Dale. Hi. Now, Dale is not such a common name. Why were you named Dale? Ah, because my mother used to listen to a lot of radio serials and Dale Evans was Roy Rogers' wife. Happily, I wasn't named after his dog or his horse who were (laughs) trigger and bullet. (laughs) Dad liked the name Dale because he said that when when you were called out in class, the whole class wouldn't get up and and and, and answer. Uh, and that was certainly true all right. No one else was called Dale. And I've spent a lifetime being assigned to male dormitories before they find out that I'm actually a woman. So radio serials were, were on at your family home when you were a kid. Tell me about the house that you were in where you'd sit around listening to that. When you were a kid at primary school, what was your house like? Well, my house was built by my father's father, who was a carpenter who emigrated from Ireland and then moved on to South Africa. And when he didn't make a success of himself there, he got back on the boat and moved on to Australia. And he joined forces with a spec builder and he managed to make a decent living. And when he had enough money to get married to a lady far superior in education, (laughs) to himself, uh, he built them a house and that was the house that we lived in when Dad came back from the war in 1945. And your grandma Nell played a big part in your life. What was she like? Terrifying. (laughs) A force of nature, savage, determined and a survivor. Nell, Nell had been the eldest of a large brood of children of of a her father was a logger in the Gippsland bush and his wife who was said to be flighty and she fled quite regularly so Nell had to bring up her own younger siblings and then at 18 she married my grandfather Horry uh, whom she met in the munitions works uh, in, in Footscray when they were both working there during the First World War and he had a whole lot of siblings and she then had to bring them up so she was an extremely dominating person and it was she who who basically laid down the what my daughter and I came to call later the awful female family chain of obligations and pressures and punishments. That is, she was unhappy. Each of the women in this chain were unhappy. And so they punished their daughters by subjugating them in the same way that they'd been subjugated. What was she like physically, Dale? Was she a big woman, this savage, no, terrifying she was rather, grandmother? No, no, she was rather, uh, she was medium sized and pretty good looking. She had curly hair. Uh, and full breasts and good legs and she was rather vain (laughs) and she was very interested in sex though no one was allowed to talk about sex in my family and we all pretended it didn't exist but in later years when I was in my 
early 20s, all my grandparents, both my grandparents on my mother's side came from Footscray, that working class suburb which played a very big role in their lives and which they were anxious to escape because they were, they were keen to be upwardly socially mobile. And I went to tea with a, a my my then fiance's uh, best friend's father, and I mentioned the name of my grandmother, Nell Hammond, and he said, oh, "Struth, she was a goer." <laughs> <laughs> But by the time she got to be my grandmother, she was pretty savage. You know, if she thought you'd told a lie, she'd wrestle you to the floor and wash your mouth out with soap, which was pretty unnerving. As you say, the, this side of your family were from Footscray. Did she feel differently about that working-class life and her working-class origins than your own mum did? Oh, absolutely. She was always talking about mum's fancy friends, too big for their boots. (laughs) I mean, the working class side of my family, when I describe my upbringing as partly working class, it's because I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house because I liked my grandmother more. You know, I, I knew she was responsible. Ultimately, she was the prime mover in this whole sorry chain of female negative experience. But life there was more fun. You know, they played cards and drank and sat around and and told each other stories, whereas in our house, you know, my father spent his whole time working and listening to classical music and Grandma's house was just a lot more fun. And so I, I think of a, a lot of my experience was was shaped by that. Your dad built your your family a home, this new modern house, but what was lurking there underneath the soil that he was unprepared for? Ah, the pampas lily. <laughs> this was a weed. This is a weed. I looked it up recently. It is an actual weed that uh, penetrates, the roots penetrate to a depth of about uh, a foot Uh, below the surface of the soil and it tends to stop anything else from growing and when my father discovered that the pampas lily uh, had infested our block he it became his mission to eradicate it so he would be out there all day every every morning before work he would go out in a pair of old bathing trunks and start sifting the soil (laughs) which he carted away in big plastic green plastic rubbish bags and he would do that every night when he got home and all weekends and so for about (laughs) 10 years he never went anywhere because he had to get rid of the pampas lily (laughs) and I I I asked myself in later years you know was this really necessary because even when I was a child and this began when I was about 12 and lasted well into my early years at university, you know, was this really necessary or was this a problem which he'd created in his own mind because he loved creating problems and solving them? And I did notice that there were flowers and trees in the adjoining blocks and how the neighbours didn't seem to be worrying about the Absolutely. But that was his focus. While he was there determined, digging up the the garden before and after work each day, your mum's real love was the movies. Tell me about going to the cinema with your mum. Where would you go? We went to the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Theatre in Malvern, which was only a few miles from our house. And Mum loved going to the movies because really her real life was deeply disappointing and she read a lot of romance novels, mostly ones by Georgette Heyer, in which handsome strangers swept you away in romantic situations. Indeed, uh, Georgia Hare was very popular in my youth and I was tremendously relieved when I first opened my copy of Germaine Greer's The Female Unit, which came out in uh, 1970, uh, to see that even Germaine Greer, the most willful of our generation, had succumbed to that fantasy of being swept off one's feet by a, a romantic hunk, <laughs> in her case, 70s 
seven feet tall <laughs> and and have him press his his passionate kiss upon her waiting lips. Well, Mum lived in that world almost completely and books were good but the movies were perfect. And so during the school holidays we would go three or four days a week to see the movies particularly in the 1950s, because those were the ones that were coming out. Did you and love these, it as well, Dale? Uh, I loved the songs. A lot of them were musicals, and I found the musicals tremendously exciting because our whole family was very much into singing and dancing. My mother and father actually met at an amateur dramatic society, and his relatives, many of them were professionals on the stage, Uh, and on TV in the early years. And so our family just assumed that the only way to express elation or the only appropriate way to express elation was to leap onto a tabletop and tap dance one's way to to ecstasy. Uh, I love that. And I, 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 it's that's an interesting question because I, I now see how I, I now look back at these movies as a, a way of imposing upon me a view of womanhood, that is, as you said, the Doris Day archetype, where I was to be relentlessly perky and happy and I would have a romantic life in which uh, I met a man um, to whom obviously I wouldn't uh, give any sex because you didn't do that. Your Doris Day always held out for a marriage licence and then I would get married and I would live happily ever after. So it's hard for me quite to remember how I felt about them at the time, although they did implant in my mind a vision of what romance was, which proved to be quite disastrous in in my attempt to negotiate the real world in Latin years. What else was it or what what was it particularly about Doris Day beneath the the big smile and the, the perfect teeth and the golden hair that made her such a star for your family in particular? Well, she was a Christian scientist and that was immensely important. So that proved that that Christian science was a good thing and <laughs> you could put together acting and Christian science. How had your family become Christian scientists? Uh, my father's mother got cancer and when he was 16, she died and she had converted to Christian science in hope of a healing, and she made him promise on her deathbed to convert to Christian science. And so he did and was absolutely faithful to his promise and very rigid in his adherence to the basic rules, which were that you don't go to a doctor because you're not sick, you just think you are, because as as the great the great line of of, of science and health by by Mary Baker Eddy is there is no life, truth, intelligence or substance in matter. All is infinite mind and it's infinite manifestation. So if you thought your body was real, it wasn't. You were just an idea in the mind of God. And if you got sick, you had to make a connection with the divine mind. And if you failed to get in touch with the divine mind, to add insult to injury, your sickness was actually your own fault because it was your own failure. What happened to you, I think, when you were six or so and and your mum's hot iron fell on you? Well, well, I screamed and mum screamed and she wanted to call the doctor and dad said, no, Norma, you can't call the doctor, you're aiding and abetting error, which was another major catchphrase, all the catchphrases in capital letters. Uh, however, <laughs> luck was with mum because we happened to live next door to the superintendent of St Vincent's Hospital, a guy called Bill Keane. And so every time something like that happened, mum would rush over to the back fence, yell over the back fence for Bill Keane to come and have a look at us. And he would come over and and she would say to, to dad, 
It's not calling the doctor. I just called over the fence to Bill to ask him to come and have a look. <laughs> you were knocked over by a car a few years later. I mean, did your dad accede to, to visiting a hospital in that instance? Ah, yes, he had to give in that time because I was quite badly injured. Uh, and also, it happened at a, at, a, at a picnic for what was then called the Spastic Society. Mum loved doing things and one of our friends had, one of her friends had a spastic child and there was a big fundraiser up in what were then called the hills, <laughs> that is, you know, up near Emerald, the Patch, that sort of area, and her friends had a house there, so we went up and to the to the fundraising picnic. And when I was knocked over, my dad came rushing down the hill and leaned over me and said, "You're not hurt. You just think you are." Oh, <laughs> and hot on his heels was Nell. She came galloping down the hill and shouted. Get away from a lorry! And this is your grandma. Your grandma Nell yeah. came to My the rescue. Yes. <laughs> Call an ambulance, and and so I was driven to Ferntree Gully Hospital. And after that, I spent quite a lot of time at the Children's Hospital in East Melbourne. What was church like as as a Christian Scientist? What happened there? Extraordinarily dull because unlike unlike Catholic churches, which I later in life fell in love with because they're so beautiful and they're all the altarpieces and or or even religious instruction at school where at least you had a black velvet sort of curtain on which they'd pin coloured pictures of Jesus and Mary and 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 and, and the ox and the ass. In Christian Science Sunday School is completely bare. It's a bare hall with a whole lot of benches where the chapels would be in a real church. And what you did from age 2 to 18, which were the parameters of Sunday school going, uh, you sat and were read to from the Bible and from Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy. What about the testimony meetings that your father would take you to? What happened at those? Oh, those were totally ghastly because they happened on Wednesdays at 8pm and you would be press-ganged into going along with Dad to the testimony meetings. There was an offsetting interest in that you sat on the pews during the hour-long ceremony uh, with the children, with the sons of his friends, and that was the only time he got to get anywhere near a boy. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of titillating. But the whole, the, the general occasion was terrible because the idea was that the reader who led the services would read a couple of selections matching passages from the Bible and then from Science and Health. And then for the whole of the rest of the hour, the congregation was expected to stand up and testify to demonstrations of Christian science, of healing uh, and other small life triumphs uh, until the hour was over. And often there was nobody, nobody had anything to say. And when everybody else was silent after a long time, you know, listening to the gurgling of people's stomachs, my dad would get up and invent some pointless story and describe it as, 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 as much length as possible in <laughs> words as obfuscating as possible, you know, to make the maximum time. But the sort of demonstrations were things like old ladies would get up and tell how they were up the country with their sisters and they were left alone to cross the road and I was about to cross the road and round the corner came a cow <laughs> and I was... I nearly died of fright, but I said to myself, I'm a child of God and so is the cow. And so I stepped into the road and put out my hand and said, stop, cow, and it stopped. <laughs> we kids, we, we, we could hardly contain our laughter. It's just, it, these were, it was an amazing world that we lived in of, of absolute unreality. Was there a moment where you stopped believing that you remember Dale? 
really the moment I got to university and I saw that there was another world because I'd never questioned my parents' beliefs. I was a very obedient child and I thought of them as a sort of indissoluble we of which I was part. And when I got to university and found there were totally different ways of seeing the world, Christian scientists, Christian scientists just seemed to me kind of ridiculous and I, 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 I abandoned it completely. And also, I, I was there was a moment of, of, of dismissal where the elders of the church wrote me a letter, uh, telling me that I had been seduced by sex and secular letters because I'd turned up to church in a tight red jersey dress with a newly dyed red hair <laughs> to take part in the university review and I had a, a a boy in tow and this was a letter of rebuke. But actually uh, it wasn't the sex so much as the secular letters. The minute I began reading uh the minute my reading ceased to be censored by mum, which it was throughout my childhood, uh, and I got to university and I could read whatever I liked, it just it didn't occur to me that there was any point in being a Christian scientist. See, books are dangerous, Dale. It's true. They're very dangerous. Yes, it's wonderful, so, isn't it? <laughs> so once you got to university and this whole new world opened up, in front of you and you could have plunged yourself into anything. Why was it Renaissance Italy that grabbed your curiosity? In my first year I studied British history and I found that I found that repellent because it was basically about pointless academic controversies which closely resembled gladiatorial combats and I didn't see the point of these and I I felt that if history was so contingent that what was true in 1952 could be laughable in 1957 you know why bother I'd done history and English because those were the subjects I was good at at school and those were the subjects that you I was on a teacher's scholarship and I had to do subjects you taught at school but then in my second year, I took courses with three fabulous teachers who had a totally different view of history as a, a kind of cooperative enterprise where you built upon the discoveries of people who'd gone before. And the point of history was to expand your experience and your whole sense of self beyond the bounds, uh, the narrow bounds of time and space, which, which naturally constrain all individual lives. And I just saw it as a magic world in which I could escape from Melbourne, which was rather dull in the 50s, much duller than it is now. The Renaissance was exciting because it was beautiful. There was all the art and it was romantic. And, and finally, Italy was exciting. And the University of Melbourne campus was in the heart of the Italian Italian district at that time and I used to eat at a cafe called Genevieve's and when I found that while we'd been eating Irish potato soup and and spaghetti out of tins that Italians ate spaghetti all'aglio e olio I thought I want to be where people are eating stuff like this all the time so it all kind of came together. You met the man who'd become your husband, Bill, right at the beginning of your years at Melbourne University, and he was also studying the Italian Renaissance. And the two of you managed to pursue your studies together in London. And from there, you made your very first trip to Florence. How did you travel to Italy? By train, by a very uncomfortable train, <laughs> that is, uh, in a train that went from Victoria Station to Santa Maria Novella, which is the Florence Station, and it took about, I guess, about 28 hours and you had to change because there was no channel <laughs> in those days. So you had to change at Dover and then cross the channel and then wait for the train to Italy. And the couchettes were enormously uncomfortable. They were hard as boards and it, and, and it was horrible going through the Alps because you were constantly waking, 
wakened by the sound of, of, of carriages coupling and uncoupling and the grinding of brakes. And so when at last we were nearing Florence or believed we must be because we'd passed Bologna, we asked a young man who was in the carriage who seemed very experienced because he kept changing from one language to another as we crossed Europe, how long it was to Florence. And he said, oh, only about an hour. And if you get up and stand in the corridor as the train pulls into Santa Maria Novella Station, you'll see the cupola of the cathedral, that is the icon of Florence, Brunelleschi's great cupola for Florence Cathedral. And we did this, and as we stood in the corridor, we were near to tears. <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd spend all these years with this sole goal uh, of getting to Florence, getting to Italy and becoming Florentine historians. And we'd never even been there and we had no idea what it was like. And what if we didn't like it? But that didn't happen because we stepped out of the train into the, the sunshine of the glorious spring day and we were just hooked for life. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations. With Sarah Konoski. Where did you stay on that first visit to Florence? Now, at this wonderful pensione, which was recommended by our supervisor, an ancient German Jewish gentleman uh, at London University, it was called the Pensione Bartolini, and it was in a palace with a deep rust red facade which actually dated to the 16th century it looked the same in the 15th century actually because there's a picture of it it's portrayed in a picture that hangs in 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 the church opposite <laughs> uh, the palace so it was like pulling up to something out of a, 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 a well indeed out of a history book and we pulled up to this huge door and pressed the bell and uh, a window opened on the fourth floor and then some moments later uh, a servant in a striped uniform opened the door and shouldered our bags wordlessly and carried them up the four flights of stairs because of course there wasn't any elevator to the entrance to the pensione, which was on the fourth floor, and we were greeted by uh, the, the person who ran the pensione, uh, a very dominating figure who proceeded to take charge of our life for the next three months. <laughs> so was it a luxurious place if it was, it was a former palace? What was your room like? No, no. No, the, the, the facade, Florentine palaces are are often just rabbit warrens of cobbled together rooms over the centuries, joined by all sorts of corridors because you place the facade on the outside to make a public statement. So once you got past the facade and up the four flights of stairs, the rooms were very small. There was no running water. So we had to save up for a bath once a month and we had to share the water. So we took turns in being the first to bathe. And every day someone would bring you a jug of boiling water. You would wash behind a screen that looked some, like something out of a Degas painting. What was the view like from, from that window, though? What could you see? Well, everything. The view was fabulous. It was a room with a view. We had this view of the entirety of Florence laid out in front of us, like a diorama that is all the great buildings, the cathedral, the Palazzo Vecchio, the great churches, cradled in the basin, surrounded by 
blue hills in the foreground and then paler hills down the river. It was, it, it really was, uh, <laughs> was everything we could, we, we'd ever dreamed of. So it didn't matter that uh, we, there was no running that you water stank. and our beds were <laughs> straw pallets and things like that. You know, we got by on romance because we were both romantics and programmed to do so. So, of course, you and Bill were there to work. Where did you go to, to do your research? Where did you spend your days in Florence? Now we spent our days in the archives, and in those days the archives were located in the Uffizi galleries, that is in the famous gallery, but the galleries themselves are right up on the top floor and the archives were about two floors up from the ground or the reading rooms of the archives were about two floors up from the ground just underneath the picture galleries so that you'd hear the tourist feet tramping Past above Botticelli. you. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. As you sat there at your desk, peering at your barely legible manuscripts, because the light, the light bulbs in Italy in those days were, I don't know, about 20 watts so that you could barely see. So there was a, you would queue to get the the seat nearest the only window in the reading room so that you might have a hope of deciphering. And what were you uh, reading? What were, what reading? were you peering at? What were these manuscripts? Uh, well, I worked a lot on tax records and because they tell you an enormous amount about people, their, their tax reports were not, <laughs> were unlike the modern day ones, they asked a few leading questions. Well, rather like you're asking me, actually, <laughs> sort of there were heads under which you filled in your tax report. But this gave you lots of opportunities to make all sorts of personal comments, where you lived, who you lived next to, who your neighbours were. And as you can see, this opens up a possibility since they're, many of them are filled in by rather naive people who can barely write to tell you all about their lives. They would tell you which son was the best of the ones they had <laughs> and how their wife was very expensive to maintain because recently she'd fallen out a window and so she was no use anymore <laughs> for anything. So they're wonderful sources for the historian. And, and these are and from the 1500s, the 1600s? Well, the 1500s. How, how hard were they to actually decipher? I mean, even given the, the issues with the light bulbs, is it handwriting still legible from, from so many hundreds of years ago? They're very difficult to decipher. And then the other sorts of documents on, on which my thesis was very heavily based were personal letters. They were easier to manipulate than the tax reports, which were huge registers, often a foot high and two foot wide, so they were even physically hard to read. But the, the mainly merchant elite whose letters I read, that is like the Medici and their friends, purposely made it difficult for you to read the letters uh, as a form of security because they didn't want their political and business secrets to fall into the hands of whatever messenger they might have to use to carry the letters because, of course, there was no post office. So if you wanted to send a letter from Florence to Bologna, if you could, if you were like the Medici had a very big organisation, you might use someone in the organisation, but often you just had to use whoever you happen to know was going to Bologna and they would come by your palace on their horse and it would be snorting in the courtyard waiting for you to finish the letter. So you would scribble it off as elusively as possible. You and Bill went back annually after that first visit and you were there when you were pregnant in 1970. What was it like to be there as a pregnant woman in Florence? Were you treated differently? Oh, it was wonderful. It was such a triumph. At last I'd fulfilled my appropriate function. I spent this, this really idyllic three months in Florence when I was pregnant. When I went to buy my, my groceries at, at the Fruity Vandala underneath my apartment, all the, all the ladies would come up and feel my baby bump and comment on its progress. And for the first time, they, they treated me like a real <laughs> human being. And they helped 
helped me. I had to I had to do the laundry, and that was difficult because in a Florentine apartment, which is is facing on to a narrow street in which there's huge amount of traffic, in order to dry your laundry, you you have to manage to throw it onto hooks, which are hanging outside the windows. And I couldn't do this at first. It was like it was like fly fishing, which I certainly <laughs> had never done, or lassoing a cow, which I could never have done either. And at first the ladies opposite would laugh as <laughs> so I failed to do this. But then they And if you missed is your and... washing just fall on the street if you don't yes, it falls get it on over the there. street. Oh. So they yes, and the bus runs over it. So they they, they would come out, they would run down and collect the washing and then they would yell across the, the, the street you because the windows were only about eight feet apart you know from one side of the street to the other explaining how I had to do it it was it was a nice time how did the hours looking after a baby compare to hours in the library was that a good fit Dale oh it was totally traumatic I couldn't believe this had happened to me <laughs> That, you know, I'd been sitting there in the archives and I'd uh, sort of enjoying myself and, 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 and discovering all these exciting things. And then after that, I'd written a thesis, which was, was somewhat applauded. And then suddenly, when we arrived back in Australia by boat, which we'd had to do because in those days they wouldn't let you fly if you were pregnant. And there was a great storm in the Atlantic and if it was a, a, a typhoon which devastated Madagascar and I threw up all day, every day, for the whole time across the Indian Ocean. And so Margaret was born premature a week after we landed in Australia. So there was no adjustment period. You know, one minute I was in Italy and the next minute I was in a backyard in Mount Waverley hanging out nappies and wondering how I was going to look after this thing because I, I didn't know anything about children. I didn't know any children. I'd hardly ever laid hands upon one and to be left all alone while Bill worked in his first job at Monash uh, looking after the baby was very, very difficult. And did me. it feel like you'd been taken back into precisely the kind of life you'd worked so hard to escape? Absolutely. It just felt like I tried so hard to get away from motherhood as the, the sole and inevitable destiny of women and now I was flung back into it. It, it was just terrible. But the only mitigating factors were, well, really, the, the major mitigating factor was that Margaret was a very cheerful little baby and she would, I, I would sit her up in this plastic chair and I decided I had to do some work. So I chose a subject that was very simple and it wasn't something required a sustained effort of concentration and not much imagination. And she would wave her hands and clap and tap her feet in time with the clack of my typewriter. And I, I came to regard her as a cheerful companion. <laughs> and you and Bill had shared this scholastic endeavour together, but over time things personally deteriorated between you and, and when Margaret, your daughter, was 11, you left the marriage. What stands out in your mind when you think back about that time? the awfulness of abandoning Margaret. Uh, the way it happened was that I became involved with this colleague at La Trobe University where I had taught happily for a decade. We would usually go to Florence. We went off to Florence for a whole year of, of study as, as fellows at the Harvard Centre for Renaissance Studies in Florence and it was supposed to be a wonderful year. And it was a terrible year because all I could think of was that, that I didn't want to spend my whole time exploring the dead past when I wanted to be alive and living in the present. And I wanted to have this love affair and this great love. And here I was tied to my husband and... I, I went from a glorious spring in Melbourne to a, a late autumn in Florence where 
the leaves were rotting in the gutters and everything was dying. And when I went to all the places I loved, I didn't get transported by ecstasy as I normally did. I just felt that everything was about death. So I flew back to Australia after six months to be uh, with this person. And the image of this time is the reverse image of that great arrival, that first arrival in Florence. And as I left to go back to Australia and Margaret and Bill were standing on the platform waving goodbye and she tried to smile but didn't really succeed. And that's a governing image of my life is because it represents the end of the romantic dream and my the beginning of my great betrayal of of my daughter. I didn't want to leave her alone to fend for herself, but I just couldn't stay. Well, you didn't leave her alone. You left her with her loving father. That's true. That's well. That's what I thought at the time, but as it's transpired, you know, she really needed me and. Uh, most of the people I know thought it was a pretty extraordinary thing to do. It was an extraordinary thing to do, especially back in the 80s, to leave your child on the threshold of adolescence. It was a it was a difficult thing for both of us. I know that life isn't like this, Dale, but is it something that you wish you hadn't done, that you'd do differently if it were possible? Yeah, I mean, obviously, and that's clearly that's a question I ask myself every day for the last 40 years, but I think the answer is um, that I could, if I could have done it differently, I would have, but I just couldn't stay with a man whom I didn't desire, and that was certainly the motive force for leaving. I mean, that was what drove me to leave, But more profoundly, I wanted to be more myself and I passed straight from the dominance of my family to a marriage with my husband who, although he wholeheartedly supported me and my enterprises, I wanted to be independent. I saw the world differently. I'd never had a chance to be fully myself. And I I just had to go because I was I, I was too angry. I was so angry about being trapped and locked up in this marriage. What was your relationship like with your daughter after that and after the grief of that? separation and you leaving what were the following years like between you well the consequences were pretty dire because at the age when I actually left Australia got to go to the United States which was a very definitive form of leaving and we had planned that I would come back to Australia or she would come to me every holidays. But, of course, that was a rather unrealistic thing because I didn't know much about parenting. I had no sense that children need you to be there continuously. That's what parenting is about. And so these brief meetings in which, as she said in later years, well, one minute it's all on and the next it's all off again. This is not what a child needs. And so she just refused to come and see me. And this went on for years and years so that I saw her pretty infrequently. And then she went to a psychotherapist who suggested that I was putting too much weight on her and she needed to be free of me. And I didn't see her for seven years. In those years where you moved to the US and and had a whole string of really very prestigious academic jobs, what was happening with you personally? I mean, how much were you drinking in those years, Dale? Enormous amounts. It's a wonder I survived. I'm going to say, I have to say, having read your book, I didn't expect you to look as well as, as you do. Oh. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, I've always had a fresh face. <laughs> Fat people do tend to sort of be fresh-faced and cheery even into to old age. <laughs> Did it 
feel like a problem? Like at the time, were you conscious of, I really am drinking way too much? Yes, but we belong to a drinking culture. And when I got to America, I was interested that actually Americans are rather Puritan, especially in academic circles. And so my drinking was looked upon uh, with astonishment. But I spent a lot of time in Florence and my British friends saw nothing out of the ordinary. <laughs> and 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 so one one just sort of, you know, you took the attitude that well, you'd solve the immediate problem by just getting paralytic and you wouldn't know about it anymore and you could get up the next day and start again. Where did that approach take you in, in 1989? Uh, to East Los Angeles County Jail where I spent two days because I was arrested for drunk driving and... That was what finally turned it around. It was in itself a shocking experience, but it gave me the opportunity to, to be confronted by the fact that I was a complete social menace. I mean, when, when we were young, in Australia, you took the attitude that if your, if your fellow students and friends disappeared over the summer vacation because they'd had a car accident and were killed in it, it was like fate, you know, it was like storms or, or heat waves. It just happened. And it is amazing that it took me so many decades to get to the point of realising that not so much drinking, because I still drink, I and mean, I'm definitely, I'm a great foodie, and I'm certainly not going to give up the pleasures of good wine and things, but drinking and driving is just an insane idea, and you're a walking menace to society, and that that was partly the result of being jailed. It was partly the result of the rehabilitation afterwards when you had to go to these rehabilitation meetings where mothers from MAD, that is Mothers Against Drunk Driving, would come to the meetings and they would put up these photographs of their children with faces bright with happiness and hope like the photograph that you had of your own child whom you hadn't seen for months or even years and you were the drunk driver who was about to sweep them away and I, I just couldn't... I found it very difficult to deal with those occasions and so that utterly changed my drinking and driving behaviour and, and being in in jail for two days was pretty shocking. What did the other women make of you, this white Australian Renaissance scholar in the East LA County Jail? I imagine you stood out. Ah, that's putting it mildly. I was like a unicorn. I mean, they just stared at me for hours and hours when they saw me coming with my blankets. They actually screamed with laughter and yelled, what you in here for? Jaywalking. <laughs> Those Hollywood movies that you'd seen with your mum as a kid, Dale, were they still shaping your thinking about how you might turn your life around once you made it back out of um, the county jail and were teaching and, and living in different parts of the US? How preoccupied were you with finding a romantic partner? Oh, well, I was totally preoccupied with, with that and I guess I I wanted a soulmate and and I my way of going about finding one was was seriously limited and deformed by the views I'd imbibed of romance when I was a kid you know going to see in 1950 King Solomon's Mines which was a was just a movie with Deborah Kerr and Stuart Granger in which he's an iron-jawed hunk who, who resists her romantic overtures until one day they're up a tree in the middle of the African jungle in the middle of the night threatened by angry bushmen and deadly snakes and he finally breaks down and, and kisses her 
And for the rest of my life, really, I tried to bring about such unlikely clusters <laughs> of circumstances <laughs> conducive to seduction. So my, my, my experiments in the United States with a whole range of unsuitable people were somewhat shaped by the movies. And partly, however, they were shaped by the fact that academics male academics, especially in America, are a very conservative, uptight lot. And I just, I couldn't get on with them at all. And so I tended to pick up ordinary guys in the street who were a bit more laid back and ones who were younger because they had a a more progressive view of women. So this led to a lot of uh, slightly way out adventures and not much serious success because obviously most of these relationships didn't have a big chance of, of ultimate survival. So when, when you look back over your life, Dale, I mean, what was it that really gives it shape and meaning? It wasn't a man. It wasn't a, a romantic relationship. What was it? Oh, it was definitely work. I loved work. I, I loved Florentine history because it allowed me to live in Italy where you could eat wonderful food and have lots of friends. I love the Italian lifestyle. And I just found the the whole matter of of trying to answer the big questions, put together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, infinitely fascinating. So work was the thing, but I think the the example of your grandmother, Grandma Nell, if we return to her, I, I guess tells us that it's never too late, never say never. What happened with her romantically right at the end of her life? <laughs> Ah, yes. <laughs> Five minutes to midnight romance is definitely in my genes. Nell certainly never said die. And at the age of 93, she was in an old folks home where I visited it and I said, how do you find it? And she said, I don't like it here. I don't like the others. They're all old. Anyhow, shortly after that visit, I got a phone call from my mother uh, who asked me to intervene because my grandmother had run away from this institution with a man, an ex-Jesuit, 20 years younger than herself, a mere stripling of 70-something, and they were living together in the Bensdale Hotel above the bar, which was hot, really... <laughs> upset my mother. So in, in the end, they quarrelled Nell and put her back in the institution. Well, Dale, your story is not over yet. That's absolutely <laughs> That's <right>. true. <laughs> I've enjoyed speaking with you enormously. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. And thank you so much for inviting me. That was my conversation with Dale Kent from last year. And Dale's memoir is The Most I Could Be, a Renaissance Story. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keep you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. The new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.